Good evening. And before we start, let me just uh, unfortunately inform you that in two weeks' time I won't be able to give shit. So that means that I'm going to have to do everything this week. So no interrupting, no questions. No, I'm, sure. um, I'm going to try and get through as much as we can. We need to finish off the halachas of Tishabov. We've really come to the end of the halachas of Tishabov. Just this year, Tishabov being shut, being Sunday, when it's a mitzvah. So there's a few halachas which are relevant to Tishabov for those who are not fasting, which I will discuss in a moment. And I'd like to run through some relevant halachas of what we did. And when we have to do them all, we'll try and get through as many as we can. So let's just finish off what we were discussing in the previous year with regards to Tishbov. Tishbov this year falls on a... We've been through the halakhas of, of Shabbos with Thomas, which unfortunately falls on Sunday. Hopefully, the, by the time it comes to Sunday, there won't be any need for Shabbos with Thomas. But if uh, the Mashiach doesn't come between now and then, then Shabbos with Thomas falls on a Sunday. It's again a nitka. We've been through the different halakhas of Shabbos with Thomas. So we've discussed our lockers of the three weeks and we've discussed our lockers of the nine days. And we now need to finish off discussing the halakhas of Tishabov, which hopefully will be a moed rather than a tanis. But if unfortunately it remains a tanis, then the tanis starts on Matsoi Shabbos. So we've discussed already the halakhas of the Suda Hamafsekis, which is different this year to a normal year, because this year is a Shabbos, so there's no real halakh of Suda Hamafsekis. You can carry on eating up until the time when the tanis starts without any worries without any conditions and you can eat whatever you like to eat, you can eat meat, you can eat chalons, you can do whatever you want right up until the beginning of the Tanis. Once the Tanis starts, and the Tanis starts at sun, sunset, sunset Shia, that's when the Tanis starts. So the moment it's sunset on Shabbos afternoon, Shabbos evening, then the Tanis begins. However, it doesn't begin in the full sense of the word. It begins that one has to stop eating, one has to refrain from eating and drinking. But the, the other areas of the Tanis don't yet start, so you don't change your shoes yet, because it's still Shabbos. You don't sit low, because it's still Shabbos. Um, you don't sit on the floor, because it's still Shabbos. We in shul won't change, won't change the Parechus, I mean, we won't remove the Parechus. Even on Tishabov, we remove the Parechus. Normally, we'd remove it Arab Tishabov, and we don't remove it as soon as it's not, because it's still Shabbos. So the, the Shabbos, it remains, but at the same time, it's a bit of a, of a, of a strange crossover from Shabbos to Tishabot, but that's how it is, and therefore one does one refrains from eating and, si- and drinking, but all the other halakhas of sitting low on the floor, etc., changing shoes, etc., changing Shabbos clothes, one's not allowed to wear Shabbos clothes in Tishabot, one doesn't do that until it's definitely not. Here the minigin is in our shul, which is the minig of the remark, the minigin in our shul is that we come to shul with our normal clothes on a, on a Shabbos evening, be, before marriage, and we say Barakul, and after Barakul we all trip out to, to change our shoes, and uh, some people change their, their clothes, their jackets, whatever, change to the Tishabov attire. Uh, that's the Minigan Arashul. The Minigan in most other places is not to do that, but our Minig does come from the remark. Whether our Minig is relevant today or not relevant today is questionable, but that's the Minig that we have, and that's the Minig that Kalashul has done for many years, and that's how it will remain. The other shuls will have a slightly different Minig, they will start marrying a bit later meaning that you will change at home prior to coming to shul, so you'll get your primal off, you'll take your Bechtashar off, you'll, you'll change your Shabbos clothes to your weekday clothes, and you put your Tishabov shoes on, your Crocs or your Plimsolls or whatever you're wearing, and you'll come to shul already as a post-Shabbos and Tishabov attired person. Uh, but we can't do that, because since we daven on Nacht, Nacht is Nacht, and Baruch has to be at the point of Nacht, we don't have to delay Nacht, delay Baruch so what we do is and that's what the Ramos says the minute is that you c- 
come to shul, you say baruchu, and you change only afterwards. And that's the minute that we have in our shul. Now, the halachas are relevant, and we're going to just finish them up briefly, is the halachas of Havdalah for those who are fasting, and halachas of Havdalah for those who are not fasting. So, because Tishbab this year is a nitcha, so the amount of people who fast will be a little bit less, meaning it's a little bit more of a lenient tanis. So somebody who's a chayla, even though they're not a chayla masuk, means they're not desperately ill, uh, and the tanis might actually be detrimental to them, the tanis will... will uh, because it's an itcha, we will allow them probably not to fast, depending on the situation, but we will allow them probably not to fast on the tannis. A pregnant woman or a feeding, a nursing woman, will, we will allow them not to fast on the, on the tannis. In fact, I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't allow them to fast on this tannis because it's teshbab and it's nitcha. And it's particularly with the heat that we've had over the last few weeks, uh, one, mustn't be, one can't be too cautious. And since uh, it's a nitcha, Kivega says on a nitcha, a pregnant woman and a feeding a nursing woman doesn't need to fast, so they wouldn't fast. So we, we would end up this year, as we did last year, with a number of people who might have normally fasted on Tishabob, but will not be fasting this year Tishabob, which therefore brings the problem of what do we do for Havdalah. And since primarily most of these people will be women, so it really creates a problem for Havdalah. What do you do for Havdalah? Now what's interesting here is that this is a, a very close split between the Hasidim and the non-Hasidim. There's very few areas in today's life where we have a very clear split between Hasidim and non-Hasidim. Today the non-Hasidim are not uh, Hasidim and the Hasidim are not Hasidim. Everybody's one big mess. But it, here is a very clear division between the uh, pro-Hasidim and the anti-Hasidim. I'm just using that for want of the terminology. If a woman is not fasting, now we have a rule that women don't make Abdullah because there's some achlekes where the women are allowed to make Abdullah and a peak Abdullah, women shouldn't drink from the kosher of Abdullah. So we're very careful not to let them drink from the kosher of Abdullah. So we have a problem here now. Comes Matzai Shabbos, and uh, a woman is not fasting. What should, what should she do? She can't eat. She can't do anything until she's made Abdullah. So she has to make Abdullah. So if there's a man around, this is very interesting, if there's a man around, that man could make Abdullah. Whoever the man is could make Abdullah. And the woman could drink. But one second, that means the woman's going to have to drink from the kosher Abdullah. Or if there's no man around, the Mishnah Baruch tells us, if there's a woman who needs to make, make Abdullah and there's no man to make Abdullah her, then she should make Abdullah herself. But that again would mean that she has to drink from the Kaisal Abdullah. So the Hasidim are so adamant that a woman mustn't drink from the Kaisal Abdullah, they do not make Abdullah Matsoi Shabbos. They will eat and drink and do whatever they need to do, Malachas, the whole of Tishabob, and then only hear Abdullah Matsoi Tishabob together with those who are fasting. And that is, if you ask any Hasid Rob in North West London, and every Rob in North London, except for one that I know of, they will all tell you, do not make Abdullah Matsoi Tishabob. Shabbos. Wait, eat. Carrying life is normal, just make, which is very strange for us because it's a concept that we just can't, can't get our head around. Those who are not Hasidim will tell you what you're talking about. There's a Chiv Abdullah. How can you push up Abdullah because of some Kabbalistic, uh, esoterical uh, idea of not drinking, not drinking the Kaisal Abdullah? And therefore, we will tell the, the woman who's not fasting to make Abdullah Matsoi Shabbos. And as I said, there are two ways we can do that. We can either have a man who comes in from Shul and makes Abdullah doesn't drink, because this man may be fasting, assuming that he's fasting, doesn't drink, and gives the case to the woman, to his wife, or to his daughter, whoever it may be, who's not fasting, to drink the case. And that way, they've now made Abdullah, she can then carry on eating, and she can go through a Tishabov without eating, she has to carry on all the other locks of Tishabov, and she's not allowed to indulge in Tishabov, but she'll be able to drink and eat as necessary, and we won't have a problem of eating and drinking before Tishabov, before Abdullah. When it comes to Matsoi Tishabov, then this gentleman has to remember He's already made Abdullah. 
even though normally he would be making Abdullah now, but he's already made Abdullah the night before. And therefore he wouldn't repeat Abdullah. If there's no man around and the woman is not going to be fasting, then she should make Abdullah herself. She should make Abdullah herself. Like Mr. Bro says, but be evident, if there's no man around, the woman makes Abdullah on her own. Ideally, she should try and be later with a man. If there isn't, she should make Abdullah on her own. Anybody else who's fasting and not making Abdullah Masai Shabbos, because there's nobody else there who's not fasting, then they, they're not fasting. So they're, they're fasting, so there's no need for them to make Abdullah. Well, they can't make Abdullah, then they'll make Abdullah Masai Tishabam. Soon as coming from, from Shul, from marriage, they'll make Abdullah, and then they'll be able to break the fast Masai Tishabam. When it comes to the drop of Boyer so even though Tishabal falls on a Sunday and we're fasting, so we don't need to make the broker of, we don't need to make Abdullah because we're not drinking, but Boyer is a, a, a broker which we make on the light, on the candles, and that's a halacha, that's a chiv which we can fulfill even on Tishabal. So the minute in, in most shuls, and our shul as well, is that after marriage, before Echot, the they will take a nice big candle, and in some shuls everybody has candles, because they switch all the lights off and they, they, they have plenty of candles, they only read Echot from candlelight. In our shul we, we, we dim the lights, but we don't actually have candles going around, they're very worried about blowing the shul up here, they don't trust people with candles in our shuls, so therefore we only have one candle at the front, next to the person who's actually laying Echot, the rest will be using normal electric lights, but dimmer, some lights will be switched off. So they will then pass around the candle. We'll have one going around the back of the shul and one going around the front of the shul, and they will make bari mariish. Now here's the problem for the women, because a woman is not allowed to make a bracha of bari mariish on her own, because it's a separate bracha for her. It's not so clear in her locker that she's obligated to make the bracha of bari mariish. So if she's in shul and she's standing up there and the candle's down here, she really has a bit of a problem. Now I'm going to tell you something very, very interesting, which. Uh, might not be so clear to you, but I'll tell you something interesting. A few, a few months ago, we went to America, my wife and I. Well, actually, I didn't go with my wife. She went before me, and I went a little bit after her. And I went a few days after. We went for Rick Ullman's wedding. And my wife always said to me, she really wants me, don't remember Peter's stuff, but she, she doesn't know I'm going to say this. I just thought of it this second. She always said to me, she wants to go to the Living Tower Museum. And I'm a bit laid back, my wife's got more drive than me. And I said, Living Tower Museum, Living Tower Museum, leave me alone. I don't know where it is. I have no idea how to get there. I mean, I'm going to be in America for literally 18 hours, after which to the bulk of those are going to be at the customer. So I have three or four hours spare. I'm not hunting around New York for the Living Tower Museum. Sure. Being a good wife, she gave up. So I arrive in New York at 12 o'clock on a Monday. And I'm, I'm really sidetracking now, so I hope we get through everything we want to get through. I arrived in New York at uh, 12 o'clock and my brother-in-law together my wife picked me up from the airport and we drove into Barrafox where the Hassan was going to be. We knocked on our host's door, uh, uncle of my brother-in-law, very nice, and we went in there and then we decided we'll go for a walk. So we went for a walk around Barrafox. I have no idea where I am. Right? I've been to Barrafox a few times but I really couldn't. Drop me in the middle of Barrafox, I have no idea where I am. So we just went for a walk and we got thoroughly lost as good tourists do, we just got lost somewhere around, we knew we weren't too far away, we were somewhere around, I don't know where we were, 46, 44, I don't know where we were. Suddenly she, <laughs> she points me, she says, look, there's a sign, the Living Tower Museum. I said, fantastic. So she said, let's go knock on the door. I said, come on, it's, it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, you know, the chasna's in, in, in three hours, the chuppah, I've got to be there at the chuppah, I've got to speak at the chuppah, I haven't got time for the Living Tower Museum. She says, we're going to the Living Tower Museum. So we cross over the road, I knock on the door, in Kovina. Any kind of there's no answer, the door is sealed shut. The door is sealed shut. Now I'll tell you about say, my wife's determined. So I rang again. After about three times I said, enough's enough, I'm going. She said, do me a favor, one more time. So I rang the bell once more time, and lo and behold, the gentleman from next door opens the door, 
and he pokes his head around and he says, can I help you please? In a nice broad American accent, a gentleman called Moshe Scholl Deutsch, I think his name is. So I said, yes, I've just come from England, I'm literally here for a few hours. Is there any possibility we could, be, we could go around the museum? So he goes, no problem. He says, give me five minutes. He comes around, he opens the door, and he gave us a tour around this museum. And I must tell you, I say, it's worth going to America just <laughs> to go to a different museum. It's worth every second. It's the most fascinating place in the world. And if the shul ever wants to do a trip, it's worth going there. It takes 18 hours to go around this museum. 18 hours. It's probably not much bigger than half. If you take all the rooms together, than half this hall. But he is absolutely inundated with the most fascinating, fascinating artifacts. Historical artifacts. Jewish historical artifacts. Uh, absolutely unbelievable. Now, I could spend here all evening and explain to you the things that we saw there. But I'm not, he gave us a, a live tour on our own, my wife and myself, nobody else there, r- around the museum. As much as we could, we could incorporate in two and a half, three hours. We, we just about made it to the hookah. So, one of the things that he, he showed us there, he's got the most unbelievable collection of ancient coins. The most unbelievable collection of ancient, ancient coins. Uh, he showed us a coin minted in the time of Alexander the Great with a picture of Ale- Alexander the Great on it. I held it in my hand. A coin with Alexander the Great on it. A, a picture you can actually see Alexander. You can see his mane. He used to walk around with a, a lion's mane on his head. And he had a picture with a lion's mane on his head. Uh, a coin with Antiochus. Antiochus from the time of Hanukkah. So a real live silver coin. A real silver coin from the time of Antiochus. Maxis HaShekel. Real Maxis HaShekel with Aramaic Maxis HaShekel on it. Oh, the most fascinating stuff. Anyway, he, I bought from him, because he had a few sets, and I spent a lot of money, because it was worth it, and I bought from him a set of coins. The Warren tradition tells us that there's seven different coins that, that were common in the time of the Gomorrah, and these are real life, these are real from the time of Hazal. So I have at home by me a set of seven coins, a Mar, Punjan, an Issa, etc. Dinner, Shokesa, a whole seven coins that were probably used by people who were around the time than when we, the Gomorrah that we're learning. It's the most fascinating thing. I come into, into Memorial Primary School and uh, I forhead them once a year and I bring those coins in, I put the coins into them. Uh, the size of those coins are amazing. The size of the coins are amazing. Now why am I telling you this? Now I'm not just sidetracking for nothing. Out of those coins, there's two coins, one called um, a pungent and one called an Issa. Two of those coins, there's seven, it's a set of seven, each one going up in value. In fact, the, the, most, the second most valuable one is the smallest coin by far. It's a tiny little coin, about that big. It's really tiny, like the size of a, a mini, what do you call it? No, no, smaller than that. Like a mini um, SIM card. You know, the little mini SIM card. It's about the size of a mini SIM card. That's the, the second most expensive coin. And it's the most expensive, but the rest are not copper. This is silver. The one on top of that is the initial Kessa, which is even more, more, more expensive. Now, there's two coins there called an Issa and a Punjan. Now, the Gemara tells us in Masech this Brachus. How close do you need to get? So, he told me some fascinating stories, which I haven't got time for now. But one of the things he told us is a Pshat in the Gemara. I think it was from Rabbi Yashiv. Based on the fact that Rabbi Yashiv brought Rabbi Yashiv this set of, of, of coins. This set of coins, I have a similar set. I mean, it's the same set. And in the last few years, the last couple of years of his life, every morning after breakfast, for breakfast, he would lay the coins out in front of him and eat breakfast while looking at these coins. He was just so fascinated to be able to have in his possession coins that you talk about a man who never spent any, any other moment of his life other than learning Gomorrah and, and he now actually can touch the coins that, that the people that he, he's talking about and the times that he's referring to were actually, they're, they're real, it's just fascinating, it really is fascinating. Anyway, the Gomorrah tells us what's the difference, how close do you have to get to the candle to be able to 
benefit from the candle to make a bracha. So the Gemara says, so you can tell the difference between the Karim and Nisar and the Karim and Punjim. Okay? Now, when you look in Halakha, they didn't know what an Isra and a Punjim was, because Isra and Punjim didn't exist. He only, he only accesses these Isra these Karims that he's funded 21 shipwrecks in international water off the coast of Ertisol, and ancient shipwrecks will have Karims in them. So in the coral which grows around the, the, the shipwrecks, he's seen and he shows you pieces of coral with these coins in and that's where he found the Machsas HaShekel so that's why he picked up a lot of these ancient coins so in the time of Chazal where nobody had funded shipwrecks or didn't have the technology to be able to even excavate and, and, and bring up any shipwrecks they didn't know what Nisim Punjin is so the Shulchan Aruch tells us that it's got to be close enough that you can tell the difference between a coin from one country to a coin from a different country two different types of coins now I have an Isra in my house and I have a Punjin in my house and if you look at the Isra and the Punjin there's something very fascinating all the coins are different sizes or different weights. There's a difference between every single coin. When it came to Roman times, they minted two coins exactly the same. There's absolutely no difference between an Isra and a Punjin in size and shape and in picture, because every coin would have the picture of, that, of the given Caesar who was Caesar at that time. So whoever was a Roman Caesar at the time would have his picture on the coin. So what on earth is the difference between an Isra and a Punjin? Now if you look carefully at the Isra and the Punjin, on mine it's not so clear, because mine's a little bit rubbed away, one of mine. But in the ones that he showed me are really beautifully clear. The ones that he kept for himself, of course, are, are a little bit better than the ones he let me have. The, the, there's one tiny difference. On one of the pictures of the Caesar, he's wearing a laurel wreath, a little bit like asterisk. And the other one, he's wearing a crown. Otherwise, they are identical coins. And that is the only way you can tell the difference between the two. So I call my kids into a room and I switch all the lights off and I put a candle on. I gave them two 20 pence pieces. Now you probably didn't notice, but on some 20 pence pieces the queen is wearing a crown. On some 20 pence pieces she's not wearing a crown. Have a look. Don't trust me, have a look. So I put two 20 pence pieces in, and I said these are two identical coins. The only difference is one she's wearing a crown, one she isn't. How close do you need to be to be able to benefit from that candle to be able to differentiate between those two coins? You have to be extremely close. You take those coins and you hold them a little bit away, you're never going to notice the crown. The crown is such a small, tiny, minute detail on a coin. If you have two coins of exactly the same, identical pictures, identical size, identical weight, you're never going to be able to tell the difference until you're very close. If I give you a cent and a penny and I ask you to tell the difference, you can go very far, quite far away from the candle, you'll be able to tell the difference. I give you a, 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 a two coins from two different countries, even if they're similar size and similar weight, but you'll tell straight away the difference. But an Isra and a Punjin, and Chazal say particularly an Isra and a Punjin, which means you've got to be extremely close to the candle. So why am I telling you that? Because when it comes to the Teshuvah of Night, you're going to be sitting upstairs in the Lady Shul, and unless you have candles going around the Lady Shul, which I'm not sure if the board will let you, because you might drop wax on the, on the carpet and that will be terrible, then you are no way are you going to be able to benefit from those candles. So, let's get back to the Halachas now. So how on earth are women supposed to be Mekai in the Mitzvah of the Bracha on Hadlachas Ne'er if they're miles away from the candle. So the answer for that is, or if you have a woman at home, or children at home, uh, girls at home, who aren't coming to shul for kinnis and Eichah and kinnis on Leil Tishabov, so how can they be Mekayim of the Baraka of Barimah The suggestion is that the male of the house, if there's a man in the house, then he should not be yoked to the Baraka of the Barimah in shul. He should not be yoked. I mean, don't make the Baraka. And when you come home, you light a candle, and you can make a Baraka 
for the women of Borimar for yourself as well, of Borimar Ha'ish. That way you can fulfill the mitzvah of Borimar Ha'ish, even for the women, without any suffix whatsoever. I have these poems and I've shown them to a number of people. If anybody wants to see them, they're great, it's a pleasure. Uh, I wouldn't have them out of the house without my permission because they're worth a fortune. But they are absolutely fascinating. You can hold in your hand something that was probably held by people two, two and a half thousand years ago uh, in basic transactions. I'll just tell you one thing that I always tell the little, the little boys in Manoa Primary School. One of the Gemaras that they learn in Manoa Primary School is that if a person loses a coin in the street and he picks somebody else, picks it up, you can assume that the original owner has already given up hope. Why? Because we have a rule that the way of a person to constantly check his money in his pocket. So I'll give them a pound coin and I'll say to them, put it in your pocket. You have a pound coin in your pocket. You constantly put your hand in your pocket to make sure it's there, the pound coin? Of course not. So, but Chazal say you do. So what's going on here? Chazal tell me you do, and, and you tell me you don't. So there's a contradiction here. How do we put this together? And I'll pull out this more. The more is the second most expensive coin. So you can imagine the more is like a ten-pound note, let's say. Uh, and I'll show it to them. And I'll say, now, if you imagine you had that in your pocket, you know, when you have a tiny little SIM card, the, 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 the mini SIMs, and you, you've got to take it from A to B, you just want to make sure, and you keep checking it's still there because it's so small that you can't feel it. You, you can't. You, there's no weight to it. There's no no. Um, no surface area to it, so you're constantly nervous it's not there. And if it's, if, and if it's, if it's an expensive coin, your jaw are going to be checking your pocket every, every few moments. I said, when you, when you realize what the coin we're talking about, and no coin is very large, and that's the most, second most expensive, and it's tiny, then you begin to realize that, it, that in those days, they jaw will put their hands in the pockets all the time to make sure that the coins were still there. It's fascinating. So I could keep you busy for the next two hours if you're telling stories about these coins, but not for now. Let's move on. So that's the halachas of Tisha of, of Abdullah. When it comes to what you make Abdullah on, again we have a problem because you're not allowed to make Abdullah on. You're not allowed to drink wine on Tisha And even though it's a nitha, you're still not allowed to drink wine on Tisha which is a nitha. So if you can make Abdullah on Chama Medina, and what Chama Medina is, I, I, I won't discuss now because it's a long discussion, but if you can, then make Abdullah on Chama Medina. If not, if the simplest thing for you to make Abdullah on is grape juice, and you can make on grape juice, but you have to drink a Malay Lugmog, and that's it. And no more. You drink them when I love them up, and that's it. But you make Abdullah and you drink. That's the minig of Ashkenaz, and that's what we do for people who are not able to fast, unfortunately, on Tisha Okay, let's move on to that, some of the halakhas of the holidays.